Mr. Rogers, yes, from Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. When he entered the TV scene, he seemed to go against what culturally was expected and accepted in that time, where everything there in the 60s and 70s was getting louder and brighter and more expressive. He was, seemed to get quieter and steady. And he would focus on things before they were really seen on trend. He would focus on emotions and mental health and steadiness in children. And he had a way of speaking to everyone. And everyone then longed to have a neighbor with a sweet sweater like <laughs> a game. Although those puppets were a little scary, just being transparent there. But he had a way of speaking to people in a way that would reach children on their level, that would take difficult topics and connect it not just with their head, but with their heart. And when he asked where some of that came from, he said, also, by the way, an ordained minister. And so he went and actually said, when I was a boy, I would see scary things in the news. And my mom would say, look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. And so in the middle of chaos, in the middle of stress, there are first responders. There are people that come in and aid those in need. And so that's going to be the challenge today is can we look for the helpers and can we be the helpers to meet the needs in a culture filled with chaos and in a culture focused on me, could we be the neighbors that the world really is seeking? And so this morning's message is simply and appropriately entitled, Won't You Be My Neighbor? Because we are taking a look at one of the most famous parables in the Bible, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And now just a quick reminder, as we're in our series, Stories of the Kingdom, parables was the primary way through which Jesus preached and told stories and really to describe the kingdom of God. And a parable is defined as a practical story that, that Jesus tells to illustrate a spiritual truth. At its core, the word parable means to place alongside or to align. And so you take an invisible, unknown spiritual truth and you place it next to a tangible, practical, physical story that his context and audience can relate it to. And you get a little bit of insight into the heart of God and ultimately the kingdom of God. So then we said, well, what actually is the kingdom of God? We defined it this way. We said that the kingdom of God is the power of God working through the people of God that the Lord is reigning over all. He is king over all. And if he is king, we are his kingdom. We are his people. And it's right now, it's currently more about people than it is a place. And it's more about the presence of God working in our lives. And so one day, Jesus will return and reign physically over the world. But today, right now, he's still reigning spiritually over the world. And so that means that when you have the Holy Spirit in your life, when you believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, that the power of God is living in you. And now you can live as we pray the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on, on earth as it is in heaven. So we get to live kingdom down or heaven down as opposed to culture up. So you can bring a little bit of heaven, a little bit of God, into every conversation, every relationship, into the workplace, and really into our neighborhoods here. And so today, we have this story of the Good Samaritan. And even if you are non-religious, even if this is your first time into the ch entering a church building or maybe tuning into a message online, chances are you've heard at least a reference to the Good Samaritan. 
we now name hospitals and ministries and activities, and it's really seen now as a similar metaphor or even a trope where people get described, oh, they did something nice. He was a good Samaritan. She was a good Samaritan. But where does this actually come from, and what is the original context in which it was given? Well, we find it here in the gospel account of Luke. So Luke was a doctor who was a disciple of Jesus. He writes this, he, he brings everything together, and so he's writing to a person who's trying to share the gospel with him, and it's seen in two parts. So part one is the gospel of Luke. Part two is the book of Acts, same author in both. And so he's writing the accounts and the message and the ministry of Jesus. Now we get to chapter 10, and here in the story of Jesus, Jesus sends out the 72. So there's the 12, but then there's even more believers. He sends out the 72. Now, some translations, so 70. So is it 70 or 72? I don't know. But either way, both actually numbers have spiritual significance. And so whether your Bible reads 70 or 72, sends out quite a few people. They go out, in a sense, the first mission trip or first service project. And he says these words in verse 9. He says, heal the sick and, and, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Again, it's the power of God working through the people of God. So he sends the people out, and now they are performing miracles. The blind are seen, the lame are walking, people like with leprosy are being healed. And so they come back together, and they are all amped up and pumped up about it. If you've ever been on a mission trip before, you understand this concept. You go out and you do these things, and you come back and you talk about it. And even if you're not familiar with a mission trip, same thing happens. If you go to any type of camp or any type of sporting event where your team is out and you come back and you share stories, right? Teachers, they share stories about their students. Students share stories about their teachers. Like, it's just what we do. We go out and we do stuff and we come back together and we're like, oh, can you believe he said this? Can you believe that she did that? And so they're doing all these things and all these people are really excited, but then Jesus says this interesting verse that could be its own sermon. Verse 20, he says, Don't rejoice that demons obey you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, pause for a second. If, if you cast out a demon, that would be pretty crazy, right? Like, I'm, I don't think that's on anyone's agenda tomorrow as you go into the work week. But if you did, like if someone is demon-possessed, and you said, in the name of Jesus, come out, and it comes out, and you're like, you, you would tell someone about that, right? You'd be pretty amped up. And so these guys are amped up about what they're doing for Jesus. But Jesus, even in the ministry, even those who are obeying God and doing what he tells them to do, he says, don't rejoice simply that you're doing this. Rejoice in the fact that you are saved. Rejoice in the fact that you are forgiven, that you get to go to heaven, don't forget in your ministry for God that your greatest ministry is to God and from God, and that we have to live continually as people of grace. And so he's preaching on this, and just to give a little bit more background before we jump into it, he's going to encounter this lawyer, but not a lawyer, and like we think of it, it's a religious lawyer, someone who is an expert in the Old Testament, Old Testament specifically the first five books known as the Torah, someone who is like the gatekeeper of is this person following the rules or not? So he's knowledgeable, he's smart, he's moral, he's got authority. So he's seen as an expert at the time. He's going to challenge Jesus. And then to illustrate it, Jesus is going to pick the least likely person to illustrate his point, a Samaritan. Now, why did Jews and Samaritans hate each other? Well, back in, let me get the year correct, yeah, 722 B.C., 
the northern kingdom of Israel was ta- overtaken by the Assyrians. So they were disobeying God, and God allowed judgment to come in. The Assyrians come and take the northern part of the country, and they take them into captivity. Now, eventually they are freed, but when they come back, those believers actually marry and intermarry with the different ethnicities and different people, but more importantly, the different gods. And so they kind of mix and match religions and eventually create their own style, their own way of worship. Now contrast that versus the southern kingdom, who in um, 587 BC was taken captive by the Babylonians. And so this is the story of Daniel. This is the story of Nehemiah. Those things there that Nehemiah eventually leads the people back and they hold true to the word of God and to the faith of God, and they rebuild the temple walls. And so they're seen as those that have stayed true to the faith, stayed true to God. And the Sumerians are seen as they have given into the world, given into idol worship. And actually, in 330 BC, they actually said, you know what, we're not going to travel down to your temple, we're going to build our own temple. And we have a couple other accounts in the New Testament where Jesus, for example, in John chapter 4, interacts with this Samaritan woman at a well. No, in that day, Jewish people would add two additional days to their journeys to walk around Samaria, just so they, they could avoid interacting with them. And so this is such an extreme thing. This goes well beyond any pettiness we see in rivalries in sports and things like of that nature, right? Like, and I love sports and pettiness, okay? You guys know this about me. Like, growing up in Ohio, big Ohio State fan, when it was Michigan week, we wouldn't refer and use the word Michigan. We would say the team up north, the campus. I didn't go to Ohio State, but didn't live too far from there, about an hour away. They would, they would X out all the M's on campus. So like it would say stadium, they would cross out the M as if that was making a point. We're like, I don't even want to use the letters. And like, this is how bad. And yet we call ourselves the Ohio State because there's confusion. And, um, and so we have this, and I love the pettiness of sports, but people go to extreme lengths, okay? And that's cute and fun, but this is way more intense, okay? This was seen almost like a terrorist group. This was seen as someone who could infect your family, who's someone who has rebelled against God. And so at least I'm not a Samaritan. To the point where in Luke chapter 9, they're going around ministering to people and these Samaritans reject them. And the disciples go to Jesus and be like, oh, they rejected us. Can we pray a prayer of curse on them and bring down fire like you did with Elijah? Like they were ready. They were ready to start war with these people. So this is a hated group. And yet Jesus is going to use this as an example for what it means to be a neighbor. So we have this context. The lawyer comes up. They're coming back from the mission trip. They're all amped up. Jesus says, hey, it's not what you do for me. It's what I've done for you or I'm about to do for you. And this lawyer comes and says, okay. Let's see if this rabbi knows what he's talking about. Verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Like, ooh, toss him this question. And he said to him, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? I love this. Jesus responds to the question with a question. He understands that on the surface, there's the visible part of the iceberg, what someone says, But then there's the underneath the iceberg that's way more weighted, has way more mass, and it's the tone, it's the intention, it's the emotion, it's what are they after, right? And he knows that. So he asks the question, well, how do you read it? Now the lawyer's like, oh, easy, easy. I'm an expert. And he answered that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. 
So he's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6. That's known as the Shema. They prayed that every single day. And you might recognize that verse because in the New Testament, that's seen as the great commandment, right? They're attached. And then Jesus in John 13, as then love your neighbor as I have loved you. But this is a very common verse that is the basis for Jewish religion, but then also the Christian religion. And so he answers like, boom, nailed it. Is that all you got, Jesus? Kind of like this, right? Like, really? You're going to ask me like the most basic question? I clearly know that. And then Jesus has this mic drop moment, verse 28. He says, and he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. In other words, he's saying, you're not doing this. He says, oh yeah, yep, you are correct. So why don't you do it? To which all the people in the crowd are going, oh. Because this is like the most moral, educated, smart dude. who's probably not using words like dude. And, and he said, okay, now just go do it. Now why does Jesus say this? He says this because in all reality, no one can. That at our core, we are selfish. That no one can actually obey this completely and perfectly. That we will mess up any day, every day. There are people, I guarantee that people that drove here to church fighting. Let's just be real, right? You were probably arguing in the parking lot and then you walked in, how are you? Great, you know? But that's, that's because we're human. It's, it's common. We all do it. And that's what Jesus is saying. No one can live up to this. That's why I had to come. Now, verse 29. So he's offended. The lawyer's offended. And he says, but desiring to justify himself. You see, that's under the surface stuff. That is not the asking. He's not saying because he genuinely wants to know. He's, he's asking this question because he wants to make sure he's good. Right? He says, to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? This is interesting because then he asked the question, who is my neighbor? Not because he wants to know who he can help. He wants to know who he doesn't have to help. He wants to know where is the circle that I can say, okay, I'm good. I've done enough. I've gone far enough because I want the rule. We, we hate principles. We love rules, but we hate principles. Why? Because if we know a specific tangible rule, we can know when we're succeeding or failing, and we can freely judge others, right? Tell me exactly what to do. Well, love your neighbor. Well, who is my neighbor? Because he's probably thinking he's going to say the people of God, the Jewish people, all these things. So he's ready to say, because then Jesus explains how anyone else would explain in that day, to which then he gets to like, done, did that. Well, you want me to clean my room? Oh, I cleaned it. What exactly did you want me to do again? So he could like justify himself and prove to himself that he's better than everybody else in the room. But Jesus knows the motive, and this is the context in which he tells this story. Verse 30, so a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, he doesn't give any distinguishing features because this man could be anybody and this man could be everybody. And it's a very common path. It's 17 miles from Jerusalem to Jericho and known as, it's known, it was called the Way of Blood. It's not a great highway name. But the reason for that is because there are a lot of turns and maybe some people in this room have actually visited Jericho and visited the town and it's very rocky, a lot of places you could hide. And so there was a lot of stealing, a lot of, you know, thieving that would go on. And so he describes this, a very common road that people would travel. 
He says, And this man, he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance. <laughs> this is an interesting thing because anytime you say now by chance, that really is a quiet way of saying the, of the provision of God. How many chance encounters have you had in your life? Chance moments at just the right time in just the right way, just the right person was there to say or do something. Whether it came across for you or someone else for you, I don't know, but there's a lot of four chance moments and this is even illustrated in this story. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. Now if you're going from Jerusalem to Jericho, there's a good chance he's leaving a church service. He's leaving a time where he was leading. And it says going down the road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, why did he pass by? We don't fully know his motives. Maybe he had been working all day. He was exhausted, wanted to get home. Maybe he, didn't, he was performing a ceremony. He didn't want to be seen as unclean because that was a big deal in those days. Maybe he just pretended like he didn't know. But you know he knew because it said he passed by on the other side. He had to intentionally cross to avoid him, almost walking by the road like this. Okay, it's like when you see that person that you don't want to talk to in public in the grocery store and you duck into the aisle, or, or has no one else done that? Okay, now you've all done that, okay. And so, now I don't appreciate it when you do it to me, but it's okay, I still see you, I'm tall, I can look over aisles, but it's okay, I'll let it go. And, and so here's the thing, we've all done that. And so here's the priest, the religious guy, the leader, says, no, passes by the other side. Verse 32, likewise, a Levite, another spiritual person. This is really from the tribe of people that the priest came from and even the high priest. And so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side, he had intentionally chose to ignore the issue. Again, we don't know his motives. It says, but a Samaritan, to which the crowd would go, oh, right? And so they were shocked by this. Another, another thing here too, if you see somebody is attacked, we don't know what time of day it is, but if you see someone attacked, aren't you, yes, you're worried for the person, but aren't you thinking too, I wonder if the robbers are still there, right? This is dangerous. This is dangerous, right? So I, I mean, we learn in airplanes, put my mask on first, right? Like I need to get to safety first, right? Before I can help the neighbor. And so they might just simply be afraid. We don't know. He says, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. The root word for this compassion is splagma. That's so great. That's a great word, splagma, which means from the depth of my bowels. Back then, when they would say, I love you, right, or had compassion or feeling, it would, they would go to the bowels because they would, you would feel it in your gut, Right? You don't necessarily see that on Hallmark cards now. I love you from all my splagma. Right? But, but that's what he's saying here. So not only did you have the Samaritan, the Samaritan had compassion from the depth of his soul, from his bowels. And he says here, and he, went to him, um, he went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring, oil on, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn to take care of him. And on the next day, he took out two denarii. So this was enough seen to like a month stay, maybe even two months in an inn or a hotel. Here, it says, gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. 
says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. Now, our morning's message is entitled, Won't You Be My Neighbor? I thought about titling the message, Get Off Your Donkey and Help Someone. <laughs> or an alternative of that, but it didn't seem appropriate. But then again, I also just said it out loud, so maybe that's not great. Um, I didn't save anything. Anyway, <laughs> so you have this story. And what does it mean? Well, we love to think ourselves as the Good Samaritan, right? But if you have the five characters, okay, the priest, the Levite, the Samaritan, the man, and the innkeeper, what is most likely our character in the story? The guy on the road. <laughs> That's actually probably most representative of who we are in eternal reality. Go ahead and turn to your neighbor and just say, you are not the good Samaritan. You don't have to say it angrily, but like, well, you're not the Good Samaritan, that's for sure. Well, see, we love to see ourselves as the Good Samaritan, and that is a great aspirational feel, but the reality is that we probably aren't, and that's kind of the point of the story. That's why he uses the Samaritan. Say, that's the furthest person from the person asking the question, the last possible person that you think would do that. He's busting down walls, busting down categories, is saying what you think you know about religion and love is not true. That in all reality, we are not just left half dead, that we are completely dead in our sins and transgressions. And whether we did it by our own volition or we got beat up by the world that is going down a dark path, however we got here, we were helpless and we were hopeless until Jesus came. And Jesus came down into our world and he paid the price ultimately with his life so that when he rose again, we can rise again. So if we had to be a character, most likely we are the guy on the road. But the second thing, the second person that probably most closely resembles us would actually be the innkeeper. See, the innkeeper actually helped the guy as well. Except the good Samaritan, in this case, the great Samaritan would be Jesus and brings people in. It's a great picture of the church, to be honest, right? You have the inn, and Jesus comes and brings someone at your feet and says, take care of this person, and whatever you give, I will give you more. Now, it's a parable, so it's not a direct connection, but you can see the picture of it, can't you? That as a church, as we receive people, as Jesus comes in and tells us to take care of the people I bring to you, to love and to serve others the way that I have loved you, and so we have the innkeeper, and then the people that he's judging are the priest and the Levite or the people asking the question. And so then really here is the picture, that aspiration to be the good Samaritan, to be the great Samaritan, to be like Jesus. The goal, if you will, is simply this. The best time to meet a need is now. The best time to meet a need is now. This is why this is important. Religion says or asks the question, who is my neighbor? Right? Tell me who's in, who's out. Jesus says, be a good neighbor. The lawyer asks, who am I supposed to love? Who is out? 
We see this in church all the time, don't we? Who's allowed in? Who's allowed out? They don't have the same um, structure as me. They don't have the same class as me. They don't have the same political system as me. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus is the only way and truth and life to heaven. The way to Jesus, the way to heaven is very exclusive. Otherwise, why would Jesus come and die if Jesus was just a way? But the group of people that can come to Jesus is so inclusive because God so loved the world. And he gives that invitation to everybody to receive him. And Jesus had dinner and ate with the tax collectors and the sinners and the Samaritans. He said, yeah, they get in too. Whatever category you think doesn't get in, if they believe in me as Lord and Savior, they do. And so he busts down walls, he busts down categories, and says, you're asking who is my neighbor. That's not your job to define who is and who isn't. Your job is to be a good neighbor. That if you have the light with you, you take that everywhere you go. That's why those disciples and workers could say the kingdom of God is near because they were near. They were the image. They were the blessing. They were the answer to someone else's prayer. You could be the actual answer to someone else's prayer when you meet the need that is in front of you. The lawyer wanted to know who he could leave out. Jesus lets everybody in. And we're not talking salvation at this point. We're talking about what does it mean to be a Christian? You see, saved people serve people. Forgiven people forgive people. That when you imagine you are the man who was then brought back to life, taken cared for in the end, how do you not go back into your life changed? How, how would you not view Samaritans so differently at that point if you were the man that was changed by him? Does that make sense? Then we've been picked up, restored, renewed, refreshed, made whole, sent back into the world and said, go and do likewise. Then why are we so quick to judge? Why are churches defined by who we keep out and defined by what people have done wrong? That we love to feel better about ourselves they say, well, my sin's not as bad as their sin. When Jesus says, it's not about that. Go and be light, be love, be a good neighbor. Pastor Alistair Begg puts it this way. He says, the attitude and actions of the Samaritan are not held up by Jesus as a way to life, but the attitude and actions of the Samaritan are, for those who are in Christ, a way of life. We don't always have to call things mission trips and Bible camps and Bible studies. We can just call it Thursday. Does that make sense? Like, yes, let's do those things. Let's change the world. But you can change it right now. Pastor and social activist Martin Luther King Jr., one of his last sermons he ever preached was on the Good Samaritan. And he put it this way, and it's such a great thought. He said the priest and the Levite thought, if I help this man, what will happen to me? Where the Samaritan came up to the situation and said, if I don't help this man, what will happen to him? Flips the script. It's not about 
identifying the neighbor, it's just being a neighbor. It's being love. It's being light. Patrick Lencioni, author and leadership guru, who is also a believer, puts it this way. He says, my hope is that someday people won't talk about servant leadership because that will be the only type of leadership that exists. I got my doctorate in, in leadership and, and studying, so studying theory and traits and different things in there. And, and now it's like the latest phase is this servant leadership craze. Like, wow, yeah, this is where business is going. And so like I'm doing this and writing papers and taking notes and doing all those citations, which I'm just gonna be real, I hate all that stuff, but it's good. Yeah, school is great. And, um, and so going and we're writing all these theories and, there, and, and you get to the end of all, like hours and hours and hours and hours of study and like the big conclusion of all these books are like, serve people. I'm like, hello. <laughs> Jesus has been saying this for 2,000 years. But it's true, isn't it? The best boss that you've ever had is someone who knew you, who cared for you, who showed it through action first, right? The best employees and coworkers and friends and family members are those that put the needs of someone else over their own. This is what it means to lead. This is what it means to learn. This is what it means to love. And ultimately, this is what it means to live. It's not a way to life. It's a way of life. The gospel writer John, in a letter later in his life, 1 John 4, put it this way. He said, in verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not, who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In verse 9, it says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. He is the great Samaritan. <laughs> Right? He met our needs. He came down, not when we were half dead, but when we were fully dead in our sins. And he says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be propitiation, a fancy word for payment, for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another, that no one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. You know, it's hard to, quote, justify or explain or understand the wind. But when you see it moving through the trees, it becomes very obvious, right? The first storm here of monsoon season here in Arizona didn't bring a lot of rain, but oh, did it bring wind, right? And when you saw all the trees moving and swaying, can you imagine going out and be like, wind's not real, it's calm. Like you would it'd be seen as crazy, right? It would be seen as crazy. At the same time, if the trees were perfectly still, and someone was like, it's so windy out, you wouldn't believe it. And you're like, like throwing grass up in the air. Although we don't have a lot in Arizona, so you try to save it, right? And like, you're like, wait, I don't see anything, okay? I think the same is true in the church. If every single little tree in here was moved by the love of God, where we are helping the neighbors around us, you cannot help but admit that, wow, God is real. Wow, God is love. 
in a world that judges, in a world that hates, in a world that says, get yours. Love is love. Get yours. yours. Do what you want. No, God is love. But I don't need to focus on who is my neighbor. I'm just going to be one. You see, I get to take the kingdom of God with me everywhere I go, in every conversation, in every relationship, on the sports field, in the classroom, in the workplace, in the home, in my marriage with my kids. I get to bring just a little bit of light, just a little bit of love. And I know we're not going to be perfect because none of us are the good Samaritan. We can get a little bit closer. You get a little bit brighter. I want to end today just by giving some real practical advice that comes directly from this passage. Is that if you want to start, if you want to help, let me share with you four needs. What you need to meet needs. If the best time to meet a need is now, what does that look like? Well, first thing you need to meet a need is awareness. It's awareness. Do you see the needs before you? I wonder how many needs we miss every single day because we are so busy with our to-do list. We get so busy with the things we have to accomplish, we miss the people that we can impact and the gospel conversations and the by-chance moments that God has ordained for us to interact with. Because meeting a need is rarely convenient. You don't schedule that typically, right? Okay, we got church, okay, Monday, got that meeting. Tuesday, oh, I'm going to meet the need with that coworker. But are you at least aware? Can you go through life eyes open, ears open, looking and seeking and just, just being aware of the needs of the people around you? Or do you have your head down? Focus so much on self. And the Samaritan had somewhere to go. He had something to do. It wasn't convenient. But it was what was needed. And he didn't just stay at awareness. The second thing you need is you need affection. You need compassion. You need to feel it in your splagma. Are you moved? Right? Or is it, that's ah, too bad. <laughs> Do you care? And those first two are great. But the third thing you need is you need ability. Right? The Samaritan used his resources. And see, I think this is where we get stuck at times. Because we live in an age now where it can be overwhelming because we see every need all the time, Right? We see something happening across the world and we're like, wow. And so we see awareness and we have affection for it and we're broken for it. And we're like, well, I can't do everything. And then we end up doing nothing. And here's the truth. You might not be able to change the entire world, but you can change somebody's world. You might not text a word of encouragement to everybody in your phone. That might seem overwhelming, but you can text one person. Right? You might not be able to pay the neighbor's rent that month, but you can buy them a, a card or a, a grocery card. Right? 
you can call them and say, how are you, really? We get so overwhelmed, we're like, well, I can't do everything, and then we end up doing nothing. I don't think call, God's called us to do everything. You know why? Because he did everything. We can be more like the innkeeper and the, someone that God places in front of our life and say, hey, I want you to take care of this person. That little nudge I place on your heart, that child, that friend, I, I want you to reach out. You might be able to give a buck. You might be able to give 10. I don't know. But that's why we bring our pool of resources to join the generosity because this church isn't just for us. This church is for the world and this church is for this community. That's why we say for the community all the time. Imagine if everybody in this room gave something, did something. We got off our donkeys and did something every once in a while. Right? Imagine in this community, if they look up and they just see these trees waving every which way, you can't deny the wind at that point. Because that last part, the most important one, is you got to take action. If you have awareness and you have affection and you have ability and then you don't take action, you're missing something. But picture with me for a moment a world where everyone in this room, everyone tuning in online, went into their week, not focused on who's simply around them, but said, you know what? I'm going to be the good neighbor. I'm going to be the one that serves. I'm going to be the one to give. Why? Because Jesus gave everything to me. If we do that, the world will take notice and revival will come. The best time to meet a need is right now. Will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are and what you've done, that you gave your life for us. So God, I ask now that it can be a way of life, that we can love the people next to us and in front of us and when love is inconvenient, we understand that we can do what we can. We can use what we have. We can start where we are. That if everyone in this room does just a little bit, God, we start to reflect your kingdom and your heart and people's lives are changed. And as we take communion now, I pray that we can remember all that you gave for us, you as the great Samaritan. In your son's name we pray. Amen.